Hi, everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You are listening to It's All About Food. Thank you for joining me today. You've heard me say many times, every food has a story. And today we're going to be talking about something, maybe you don't consider it as a food, but it's used a lot in a beverage and sometimes it's used in foods too. So I'm including it as a food. It definitely is included in the food category. We're going to be talking about coffee, coffee, coffee in a cardboard cup, which is one of my favorite songs. And I'm not going to sing any more of it right here. I have with me Edward F. Fisher, who is professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University, where he also directs the Institute for Coffee Studies. He has authored and edited several books, most recently, The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity, and the Anthropology of Well-Being. Today, we are going to be focusing on his latest book, Making Better Coffee, How Maya Farmers and Third Wave Tastemakers Create Value. Welcome, Ted, to It's All About Food. Thanks so much, Karen. I'm really happy to be here. I, uh, I love the show, and it's an apt title. You really cover the, the range of uh, the scholarship, the pleasure, the enjoyment, the visuals. So uh, very, very Thank you. happy to be here. Thank you. I wanted to open talking about titles, so I appreciate you bringing up the title of this podcast, It's All About Food. And after reading your book, I know that your book is so appropriate on this program because we're talking about coffee and everything that we know in life is attached to this story that you've written about coffee. Just That's everything. <laughs> That's right. That's one of the beautiful things that attracted me to the study of coffee, because you're absolutely right. It uh, it affects us neurologically, right? I mean, we we talk about it this way. It's I'm I'm not myself until I've had my morning coffee or something like that. It is tied to the histories of colonialism around the world. Uh, it's tied to contemporary economics. Coffee is a big market. Uh, and lately, the coffee that we drink has been changing a lot in the United States based on cultural trends. So I think you're right. It's one of those beautiful items, topics that we can read the whole world into. I like that you use, use the word beautiful. <laughs> because a, a part of your book talks about craft and art and beauty. But there's a lot more packaged in the subject. So the first thing I want to ask you is this title for your book. Is that your title or did your publishers come up with that for marketing purposes? I'm just curious. That's a great question. And truth be told, it was uh, it was more their idea than mine. Uh, I definitely had some uh, input into <laughs> it. Uh, my worry is it's not a how to make better coffee in your home guide. Uh, I touch on things that contribute to uh, what makes a coffee good. And I talk about brewing techniques and different kinds of beans and stuff. Uh, but my worry, just sort of being uh, being perfectly honest with you here, is that it might uh, come off as a, as a how-to guide. And it's more, as you said, a soci sociological and historical and biological story about what brings coffee to our cup. Well, that's the fun thing about the title. So sometimes I think we need to trick people <laughs> into it's picking something up to educate themselves that they didn't know they needed to know about. 
It's true. And I will say that people in the coffee business, especially in the specialty coffee world, use this phrase, making better coffee. They use it intentionally to refer to both making better coffee in the cup, finding higher quality, uh, but also making coffee better for the people who grow it. And, And that's something that interests me as well, is how does our idea of what a good cup of coffee is, how does that relate to the farmers? And I do a lot of work in Guatemala, how the farmers see this coffee. Right. Making better coffee. So that word better is a heavy word and it has many layers, many levels to it. And we're going to touch on some of that because it's not just about taste and quality. It's also about capitalism. It's about the chemistry of coffee. It's about poverty. It's about exploitation. It covers so many different things. We're going to touch on some of them right now. (laughs) Now, first, I have to make a disclaimer. I am not a coffee drinker. Truth? No, one of the the rare few. When I was in college, I drank a lot of coffee and it wasn't necessarily quality coffee. I didn't know about quality coffee. I liked the taste, the smell of it, but I didn't know much about it back then. And this was in the late 70s. So I don't know that the second wave had even gotten anywhere at that time. In fact, I also started drinking uh, coffee in college uh, about 10 years later. And at that time, in fact, I remember quite vividly, I was working in a restaurant. I was going to college in Birmingham, Alabama. I was working in a a white tablecloth steakhouse. And and that's when I really, you know, both being in college and then being in a restaurant environment, I started drinking coffee. And at that time, good coffee, quality coffee was a fresh pot of Folgers, you know, brewed on the big commercial bun uh, drip. Mm-hmm. Uh, Folgers in is- your cup. I like, I, I'm, I grew up with jingles, you know, so... <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And that was, yeah. I don't even know all the lyrics. That was quality back then. And it was all those lyrics, all those Maxwell House Folgers and all the lyrics that do still stick in our mind today. Sort of building off what you were saying that you introduced the term second wave. And just to be clear about what those are, we do talk about there being three waves in coffee consumption. Now people sometimes talk about a fourth wave or a fifth wave. Oh my. But that first wave was the brand names, many of which stick around to this day. I live in Nashville and Vanderbilt is in Nashville, Tennessee, and I I live here. And this was the home of Maxwell House, Mm. uh, one of the early, early blends. Was that Maxwell House? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And those all came about. It's interesting. Those came about in the early 20th century because before then, and think back to like Western movies and stuff, coffee was sold in general stores in barrels and sacks. And you would just, you know, the shopkeep would pick out how much you wanted. But sometimes, you know, uh, unscrupulous uh, storekeepers could adulterate coffee. They could put in a little barley. They could put in some some pebble, you know, whatever Ooh, it may pebbles. be. 
<laughs> to increase the weight. Wait. Uh, and so these brands emerged uh, to sort of ensure quality, a sealed package. And we, Maxwell House, or we, Folgers, or, or Chock Full of Nuts, we're ensuring you, the consumer, that this is, this is quality coffee. And that was, you know, and if we drank that coffee today, we would say, eh, uh, but at that time, that was quality. Okay, I have to take a commercial break here because I've done two jingles so far. I'm going to do a third. Chock full of nuts is the heavenly coffee, heavenly coffee, heavenly coffee. Okay, I'm not going to continue with that, but just a little snippet for you. I was brainwashed. <laughs> to not be a coffee drinker, boy, you have the coffee jingles down. <laughs> I'm impressed. Thank you. So that's the first wave. Exactly. That was So tell us about the second and, and the third. And then really that first wave, just to put it into the, a, a larger context here, after World War II especially, it just became a household staple. Uh, income levels around the country were rising. This was this period of broad affluence in the country. And everybody, and again, think back if you want to think about TV shows, you know, Leave it to Beaver or whatever early TV shows, a pot of coffee always being in the kitchen. And anybody came over, and those were in the days where people used to just drop by and not touch mm -hmm. you ahead of time. It was, you want a cup of coffee. Uh, and so it became a, a symbol in some ways of middle-class affluence that we had all this, uh, this coffee around. And then, uh, like inklings of this were in the late 60s and early 70s, but at some point people started saying, you know, coffee doesn't have to be this, this lowest common denominator <laughs> uh, warm drink uh, that it had become. Uh, and so they started searching out Pete's, uh, especially was the pioneer in this, who's still around today, uh, Pete's in, in Oakland in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. uh, and they started uh, serving, uh, you know, roasting more specialized beans. And that was the beginning of what we call the second wave. And then by the late 70s, but really then in the 80s and taking off big time in the 90s, you saw roasters popping up around the country uh, in big cities, New York City, uh, but also in medium sized cities uh, like where I live, Nashville. And so you had these local roasters who were trying to do something a little bit different. And they started introducing. So in my personal history, I was living in New Orleans at that time. And I was hanging out in a coffee shop, PJ's on Magazine Street. that had this beautiful back patio with banana trees. And I could just sit there all day and read my books and, and drink coffee. And they, very characteristic of the second wave, they started designating broad regions. And maybe you remember this, like Kona coffee. Absolutely. Blue Mountain coffee. And those were like the super quality coffees in the late 80s and the 1990s. Yep. That was really second wave. And that's all three of these waves are still around today. It's important to point out. You can still buy Folgers in your supermarket. You can still find second wave shops all over. And Starbucks really took that second wave idea and... Uh, and ran with it as we as we all know maybe maybe all too well yeah. uh, but but then those trends toward 
and they tie into other trends about artisanal foods, right? And we have single barrel bourbons and single malt scotches and single origin olive oils and chocolates and all of these things that we used to consider micro brews that we used to consider just everyday kitchen cabinet staples started becoming a little bit more rarefied. Uh, and in, in that process emerged what we call the third wave. And those are really roasters that focus on very specific, not just regions, Kona or, or East Africa, but countries and regions within countries and usually specific named farms. Uh, and so, and that's what we see today. And in terms of uh, national chains, that's like Intelligentsia, Stumptown, uh, Counterculture, Blue Bottle, uh, and others like that. So those are the three ways. I take issue with conventional industrial foods, things that are mass produced because they're made typically, for the most part, without quality. And the concept is to maximize price and increase the quantities at all costs, cost to the quality of the product and the treatment of all the employees that are involved from the beginning to the end, as well as the environment that is used to perhaps grow some of these things if it's a, a plant-related product or even an animal-related product. I take issue with all of this. Now, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You said it so well. I think the biggest, uh, one of the other caps I wear is 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 doing consulting on, on medical issues. And I think one of the biggest threats to our health these days actually are these large transnational food and beverage companies who have teams of engineers who spend their days trying to formulate foods that, as you, you said it well, that are cheap, that are ultra-processed, uh, that are not good for our nutrition, and, uh, and that they design to be almost irresistible. Exactly. You know, and I'm not, I eat potato chip, you know, I, I indulge in products made by these companies sometimes, but, uh, but I don't think we realize the impact that they have on what we eat, on deciding what we eat and, and its impact on our health. So then on top of that, there are some of us who like to think we're informed and we have a certain amount of privilege where we can select products that kind of meet our principles right. as well as our taste. And when you talk about third wave, third wave coffee, as an example, we have people now that are looking for these artisanal products that come with some sort of romantic story about the farmers, the growers, and it all fits into something that makes us feel really good. And we're willing to pay a lot of money for it. And all of that is fabulous. I'm, I love art. I love craft and people really believing in their product. But from your book, I've learned that there's also a dark side. That's, that, that's very well said. And I agree. I, on the one hand, I really laud the artisanal uh, turn. And I, I, you know, like you, I'm, I'm the prime demographic. And there is a lot of, of, of privilege that goes along with that. A lot of people don't have the luxury of making real choices in their, in their food decisions. 
but it's a it's a good impulse. And one thing that I wanted to stress before I got into the critique in this book is that these people in the artisanal coffee world are are mostly doing it for good reasons. They want to improve quality. They want to turn people on to new flavors and new ways of drinking things. They would like to have the supply chain of coffee be more just. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and they work toward that. Uh, but as you say, a lot gets hidden in the, the stories because like with many of these things, the story can start to, to overwhelm the, the substance that it's trying to relate, right? And sometimes for some people in some companies, the story, the PR angle and the story becomes more important than actually uh, doing the, the work on the ground. And so this third wave coffee, it does look very different for particularly small holding farmers. And let me just mention one statistic here uh, that 20 million uh, people around the world uh, grow coffee or involved in coffee production. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them are small holding farmers who are struggling to get by. Uh, and so the, it, it, it's, we're not pulling those folks up out of poverty <laughs> with the artisanal coffee is just the blunt fact. Yeah. Hmm. <clears throat> now you also mentioned that most of the people that are interested in the third wave scene, you kind of painted a demographic that it's mostly white males that tend to be interested in this. Why do you think that is? Boy, that is a great question that uh, I should have thought about before and haven't. There was a loose association with kind of hipster culture, which, which uh, tended white. Uh, coffee house cultures, I think even second wave kind of tended white and male. I'm not, I don't have a really clear answer, although I would want to point out that uh, the, this, art, as you might expect, this artisanal coffee world is very open to diversity, and they've really been making a sustained effort to uh, have more diversity among baristas and roasters. It still tilts white uh bourgeois bohemian we might say you know uh, there's something something pretentious about it exactly there's a, just like with wine uh, yeah. uh aficionados you know coffee enthusiasts can be a little bit tedious or it can sound a bit pretentious when you start talking about oh you, did you taste the notes of jasmine in that uh that particular coffee uh it can't there's an insider outsider sense to the language yeah. and the culture. And I want to talk about another point you brought up on this concept of the notes or the flavors that we're supposed to identify, how some make some particular flavors the trend or the most popular of the moment. And it just shows how easily we are manipulated to learn about, oh, I should be tasting that or I should be liking that rather than do I like this or not just for what it is? But is that what taste is about? I, I All kinds of questions. Like, do we even know what tastes good? Or is it about everything around us that influences our taste? 
Yeah. It, well, the, starting at the at the end there, uh, yes, it is about it's about a lot of things. It does seem like humans have an innate uh, attraction to sweet, which we've known for a long time, and there are evolutionary reasons that we can easily imagine for why that might be. Uh, some recent research has shown that there it seems to be an innate taste for umami. The fifth mm, taste uh, mm-hmm. as well, which kind of makes sense—a meaty taste, a proteiny taste. So mm-hmm. that we are na- we have a natural pro- proclivity to sweetness and meaty uh, uh, taste. But beyond that, we really the the science of taste is is still very much uh, evolving. I mean, we have these five identified tastes that have receptors on the tongue people now are saying that there are others that we should, that there are some receptors for mineral taste that actually might be a taste. So there's a whole lot going on there, but to convert taste, and this is the distinction that they make in the literature, taste being that, that biological uh, uh, receptors on the tongue sort of picking up particular molecules, but then that gets converted to flavor in our brains. And it's mixed with all these messages from our nose, uh, all the aroma stuff. And we really don't understand what's going on in the aroma world. Uh, I mean, we're getting more and more precise, but it's it's still sort of a, a black box there. So, those, so the aromas and the taste sensors come together and we have these flavors in our brain. But then when it's in our brain, it's it's automatically sort of trying to connect it to memories of other things that we've tasted or social associations or things like that. So, and this is, I, I don't know if a study like this has been done with coffee, but definitely with wine, people perceive a wine that they've seen prices of, they perceive a higher priced wine as better. Uh, regardless, and then in these studies, they'll flip the prices around and still the higher priced wine turns out to be better. And so, and that's not people like pretending or aspiring, maybe subconsciously something like that, but it's just these kind of neural associations going on in the brain that make us perceive it as being better. And and to go back to the first part of your question, I know I'm going on a bit here, but going back to the first part of your question, when I first tried these new third wave coffees, I wasn't wild about them. Uh, I like a traditional coffee, like a chocolatey, earthy uh, kind of taste or what I call coffee coffee uh, is, is my go to. And these new what's really hip these days are, it's much more in the tea direction, much more delicate flavors, uh, natural sweetness to the cup, but you, you get like sort of floral and, and fruity uh, notes. Uh, I just got, but right before this interview, I just got to notice that a, uh, uh, a coffee uh, auctioned off, uh, I believe it was uh, yesterday uh, for, it was $42,000 for seven pounds. So that's $6,000. What? I know. It better be good. <laughs> I know. It better be really good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in that world, and that's the extreme, right? That's really extreme. But it, it's not uncommon to have 
$100 a pound coffee these days and really not uncommon to have $20, $40, $50 a pound in this, in this artisanal world. Wow. And what's really become popular, as I was saying, are these, these fruity floral flavors that were not in fashion. And again, this is to your, your point, that were not in fashion, would have been considered inferior coffees, I don't know, 10 years ago, even less. Uh, and yet this, it's something new. Uh, some of the tastemakers start turning people onto it. They're like, try this out. This is something really new and interesting. The cognoscenti sort of get into it. And it's not like there's a group of, of, you know, the coffee global elite meeting in Davos or wherever, sort of deciding what you're going to drink, but they have a power to sort of introduce new flavors and ideas some of which catch on and some of which don't. Uh, but then these cultural trends get started, as you were saying. I'm a tea drinker. And sometimes I consider myself a tea snob. I like to brew my different teas at the correct temperature. And sometimes I prefer cold brewing, just putting the leaves in water and putting them in the refrigerator. And I find that's the best way they have a natural sweetness when they're brewed cold. And my understanding is they have more nutrients and more antioxidants when they're not brewed or they're brewed at a lower temperature. So these are the things that fascinate me. And, I, and coffee is somewhat similar. And you talked about how when the third wave is judged, they're judged at different temperatures. That's right. There's That's all kinds of chemistry going on in roasting and brewing. That's right. And I, I would mention a, a, a couple of things. One uh, is that a common mistake in really trying to taste the flavors of coffee from, from people who aren't in this world is drinking it too hot. Uh, and so for those of you out there who want to try some of this, this third wave artisanal coffee, uh, let it really cool down and maybe let it cool down a step below what you think you would normally do, uh, and try it then. And some of these flavors really come out. Uh, and for, for, for you in particular, Karen, I would say, try, give, give a, give coffee another try and try, uh, what, uh, like an East African, an Ethiopian or a Kenyan naturally processed coffee and, and, and see if it's not a little bit tea-like for you. Well, part of my reasoning for not drinking coffee is not just about taste. Although I find that coffee, unlike tea, kind of makes the breath stale. Mm. And I feel that tea makes the breath fresh. And I come from everything from a health perspective first. And I also understand that teas, especially greens and whites, tend to be healthier than coffee. And there are all kinds of studies that show that coffee has health benefit, but it depends on who you are. And if you have a metabolism for caffeine, it's very complicated. And after reading your book and learning about all the different kinds of coffee and how they can be prepared, I'm thinking these studies probably aren't as good as they appear because not all coffees are the same and the way people drink them are not the same. And so there's just too many variables to make a decision. But when you mentioned that coffee, the third wave coffees have these lighter flavors and, and different fruitiness or citrus or whatever to them, that from my pretentious privilege point of view. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And it, it, it is incredible what they're doing now to produce these new flavors. So they're searching out new varietals. The main species of coffee is Coffea Arabica, Arabica, we, we call it, and looking for new varietals, trying out new processing techniques. So they're borrowing techniques from wine, for example, and doing anaerobic fermentation with beans to bring out a little bit more of this fruity flavor. Uh, and as you said, there's a, an immense amount of chemistry behind this in the varietals, the processing, the roasting, uh, the, the whole thing. Coffee really changes along the way. It's, it's interesting. Coffee is one of the very few. In fact, I really can't think of another uh, product that's, that's like this agricultural product that the processing on the farm makes a big difference in taste, but also the processing at the consumer end, the roasting and the brewing. And so it's, it's more complicated than wine in that sense. And I recently read that wine, unlike coffee and tea, you don't want to drink red wine cold because you don't taste as much of it as when it's at room temperature. So colder is not necessarily better, or maybe it's just, well, you don't want to drink uh, hot glue wine either, hot wine. <laughs> You're not a Someone glue wine it. fan. My, my, my German partner would take issue with that. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, uh, I, I think that, that uh, that's true. And the coffee stuff uh, with the... Uh, it, you don't want to drink coffee too cold either. Uh, so there is this sweet spot. Right. And going back to the health stuff, it's interesting. We often equate coffee with caffeine and rightly so, right? It is, it's a primary source of caffeine. Caffeine is the most widely used, what we call in anthropology, a drug food. Uh, it's the most widely used drug food in the world because it is a drug. We don't think about it that way, but it has uh, real uh, psychological and neurological and other kinds of biological impacts on our, on our body. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a drug, but we've equated it for a long time with caffeine. And when I was growing up, probably when you were growing up, it was kind of like something, if somebody drank a lot of coffee, it was something they had to felt like they had to excuse themselves for a little bit. Uh, it was seen as a mild vice to drink too much, uh, coffee. But recent research, and uh, a lot of this actually started at, at, at Vanderbilt here with a, a colleague of mine, Peter Martin in psychiatry. Recent research has been showing that coffee is actually really healthy for us, but it's not the caffeine. The caffeine can help us concentrate. It can elevate our mood slightly. It can give us some more stamina. That's all true. And we all use it as a drug. Oh, many of us use it as a, as a drug that way. But it turns out there are all these other compounds in coffee, these antioxidants and these various forms of chlorogenic acids that make coffee consumption uh, associated with decreases in type 2 diabetes, in Alzheimer's, in various kinds of cancers. The, my favorite study, uh, it was a meta study, uh, used the good medical term that drinking uh, up to five cups of coffee a day, and these are six ounce cups, up to five cups of coffee a day is negatively correlated with all cause mortality, which if we converted that into normal English would be the more coffee you drink, the less you die. 
<laughs> which of course there's a, a limit to that. Uh, but it does show how we how how the view of coffee in the scientific world has also changed from being something seen as detrimental and your doctor might tell you to cut back to now being seen as something that is is generally positive. And the interesting thing about that, since it's these other things besides caffeine, it doesn't matter if it's caffeinated or decaffeinated. It doesn't matter how you brew it. Uh, the, the, the health benefits of coffee still accrue. I'm sticking with tea. Which is also <laughs> super healthy. These same yeah, kinds I of think, things seem to. <laughs> I think from what I've read, tea is better, but I don't want to argue that point. I, and I, I just have to argue the other side. Of course. Karen. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's your, you're directing the Institute of Coffee Study. So I know whose side you're on. <laughs> One more thing before we get to the really dark side, which is, and I say dark, but there are a lot of important things to cover. And of course, we can't talk about everything that's in the book. And I encourage people to get the book just because not only is it a fun story to read, but there's so much you can learn about humanity and planet Earth. Thank you for saying that. I book. thought you were going to say coffee, and my intent was no. to have it be that bigger, so thanks. Oh, absolutely. Coffee's the tool. This is just a thing that bugs me. In the non-quality coffee world, we have things like Keurigs, those little plastic cups filled with some kind of coffee with all kinds of flavors. And me being a tea drinker, I prefer loose-leaf tea that I brew in water Nothing fancy. I don't want a tea bag that's made of paper. I don't want a tea bag that's made of pantyhose, you know, the nylon tea bags. And if I'm going to make coffee, I'll do it in a French press. You know, I don't want anything fancy because I don't believe in any of that. And when I see people say, you know, they're in a hurry and they need to have an escafé or they need to have a curry, I take issue with that. But also, you know, people with the third wave, they're also manipulated in a different direction. It's true, although you hit the nail on the head. It is the convenience is the trumping factor that has made the, the pods, Keurig and Nespresso and the others, really explode in recent years. Uh, it's interesting. I think it also contributed to, so uh, absolute coffee consumption levels in the United States started declining in the early 1960s. Not unrelated to our earlier point about big food and beverage companies when Pepsi and, and Coca-Cola were really coming on and becoming daily staples in U.S. diet. But we've seen this decline in overall consumption. It's, it's ticked back up in, in recent years and, and the fine coffee has gone back up. But one thing I think, one interesting thing about the pods is there's much less coffee wasted. When people were keeping a pot of mm. coffee on the kitchen counter. Mm. Oh, I remember this from my childhood, pouring out you know, the dregs, which might've been a quarter or a half a pot uh, very often, but you don't have that kind of waste with the, with the pods. You do have another kind of waste, yeah. which the plastic pods are nasty in terms of their environmental impact. And even these programs to recycle them, I think Nespresso has a global program to recycle, but you're mailing them back around the world. You know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it works. Maybe the, the ecological impact is positive. But uh, it's also the pods can be a way, just like tea bags, to hide poor quality. Yes. I mean, what do they put in? They put the dirt essentially in those tea bags, right? 
there's a growth in high quality pods lately, uh, but still it's a way of hiding this, this other aspect. Okay, let's get back to your title, Making Better Coffee, How Maya Farmers and Third Wave Tastemakers Create Value. So there's a lot of wonderful history about coffee. It's quite fascinating. And my understanding is the Maya farmers were doing their thing on their land, and then the colonists come in and and do what we know they do. They exploit and they enslave and they harm and et cetera. And the Maya farmers had to go up in the mountainous regions because they were kind of chased away. And now it turns out that the coffee that they're growing in these regions has value. So I'm almost thinking it's like a happy ending here, but not quite. So maybe you could touch on some of that. That's exactly right. Uh, I mean, for a long time, and I'm a, I, Guatemala is my region of specialty. It's a country that I know very well. I, I, I guess I consider myself or am considered a, a, you know, a world expert on this country. When I start, first started really diving into coffee 10 years ago, my image of it was exactly what you portrayed. And that is not untrue. Uh, German and Spanish and English colonists coming in taking land from uh, Mayan communities, planting it with coffee to export back to Europe and the United States, uh, and forcing these Mayan people to work on what used to be their own land. And the coffee plantations, they were like poster children for awful neo-colonial working conditions. Uh, Seasonal labor, poor food and sanitary conditions on the farms and people just worked and paid very little and and often sort of indebted to the uh, through loans and and other things to the to the big farms it was really i had a a super negative uh, view of of coffee in, in guatemala and there's a coffee oligarchy in guatemala i mean you know, these 20 families who owned these huge farms and, and, and made tons of money, essentially off the, off the backs of, of Mayan, Mayan laborers. But like you said, when I first, what got me interested in coffee was hearing this story that the quality turn in the coffee market, the second wave and then the third wave, uh, generally that, co- that quality coffee is grown at higher altitudes than the, the, the German and Spanish-owned farms were at. And so you're absolutely right. There was this poetic justice of a turn in the consumer market of people wanting higher quality, resulting in the coffee that, that small holding Mayan farmers in the highlands of Guatemala were growing was suddenly in demand and commanding higher prices. And it produced, uh, you know, it, it produced successes in, in Mayan communities. I'm hesitating a little bit because uh, what we would consider to be even successful small holding Mayan farmers still live in conditions that would look to us like extreme poverty or, or, or poverty. Uh, so it's all, it's all relative that way. Uh, but yeah, there was this big boom with the specialty market in, in Mayan communities. And many of the, the Mayan farmers who used to work on the large plantations started growing their own coffee and selling it, especially through cooperatives. Uh, so it was, it was heady days. Uh, but as you're suggesting, as the move, market moved to even higher end coffee, these coffees that command 
20 or 50 or 100 or 500 or $4,000 a pound, that market is still controlled by, not by real small holding farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people who, I mean, Mayan farmers still most speak a Mayan language. These are people, the, the, the successful third wave farmers in Guatemala, you know, they speak Spanish. They probably speak a little English. They've probably traveled to the States. They sort of get the vibe uh, of, of what specialty coffee is here. And they're able to, and they're able to market their products into that niche, if, if that makes sense. When I was reading it and you were talking about the trends in third wave coffee, and then I was thinking about the Maya farmers, their terroir, the type of flavors that their coffee was producing. I, I was wondering, how does that influence each other? Because a farmer could be producing a, a coffee that's quite popular, but then oh, they're not trending anymore. So are there any people that are loyal to their brand or do they move on to the next great taste? That is a great question. And it gets at the fact that uh, a couple of things. One, that growing coffee is a long-term endeavor. So Mayan farmer subsistence crops there would be corn and beans and squash and tomatoes and things like that. I mean, you grow those in a few months. Uh, Coffee from planting to first harvest is four years. And so for a struggling farmer, that's a big commitment. Uh, and they are really tied to their land and not just for economic reasons, also because land is important in, in Mayan cosmologies and having a relationship with the land and a symbiotic relationship with the land. Uh, so they really are tied to this terroir, as you say. And yet, if the market is always chasing the new, cool, latest flavor, then in its four years from planning to harvest, uh, it puts these small holding farmers at a, at a real disadvantage. At the same time, let me say uh, really clearly that lots of small roasters are trying and, and establishing relationships with farmers over many years and with cooperatives. Uh, there's a group called Cooperative Coffees that does this really well. Uh, Counterculture uh, out of North Carolina has also been a leader in this. And And their idea is to get away from what you're saying. If we want to make the supply chains more just, we've got to have multi-year commitments with these farmers so they know that they're not going to go bust next year uh, and they'll keep producing this this coffee. But that's in tension with this trend of finding new and crazy flavors. And I wonder if that's just because those of those who are into that scene are bored. Yeah, novelty plays a huge role in this and, and sort of bored, but also, and you mentioned this as a book about capitalism, and I do talk about sort of the, 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 the drivers of a capitalist system and how it works through the, the market. And capitalism is always about expansion, right? Expanding markets, bringing new people into markets or expanding markets that, that already exist. And so we, we have this push for new things that sort of, you know, it's, I was just reading today about the, the uh, efforts to try and make a, a cell phone that will last 10 years. Uh, and the lifespan now is in the three to four year range for, for most cell phones. 
but that is built in. It's just like the big auto producers used to do back in the day. Let's have new models come out. So people have to get these new models. And so we sell more. Uh, I don't know. So it, there's always a balance there. I like trying new things. I think many of us do, right? Expanding our horizons. And, and in the case of coffee, it's like, hey, there's this thing that you thought you knew really well. Try this version of it. And, you know, I've, I've been in this place and been like, oh, wow, that's uh, no. And feeling like my life is a little bit enriched for having had that experience. So I think that there are good impulses at work also behind, uh, behind this constant innovation. But the overall effect is, is, is having to bring new stuff to the market all the time. So you've mentioned cooperatives, and I want to talk a little bit about them. My understanding is they enable the really small farmers to get their coffee processed to a point where they can sell it, and many of these farmers can't can afford the basic washing equipment. And so the cooperatives really come in handy. And with the Maya, Maya farmers, it also works into their their culture with community and working together, but it also has some challenges. That's exactly right. Uh, Mayan farmers who I've talked to and we've done some large scale surveys are very fond of cooperatives for the reasons that you said. There are long traditions of communities working together. It's also just super practical. If you're just, you know, if you're growing a couple of acres of, of coffee, you know, Starbucks isn't going to buy from you, right? <laughs> or even even a medium-sized roaster, even a small roaster would be a stretch. Uh, but if you can group that coffee together from different small holding farmers and then sell it via cooperative, you can see coffee's generally sold in container loads, 40,000 pounds. Uh, that's a lot of coffee for a small holding producer to produce. So to get a foothold in the market, they really need these cooperatives. But going back to what we were talking about earlier, so second wave talked about regions. You might have a Guatemalan Antigua, uh, a, a, a Kona from, from, uh, from Hawaii, a Jamaican Blue Mountain. But now in artisanal coffees, we talk about farms. And it's even getting down to talking about sections, uh, particular sections of a, of a farm. And those are the coffees that command the very highest prices. These that auction off for, again, 20, 50, 100, $500 a pound. Those inevitably come from a single farmer who is named, whose biography is given, uh, the whole story is told about them. And that's part of the value for a consumer, right? Feeling like, oh, this is the person who grew my coffee and I can kind of imagine them and I kind of have a relationship with them. Maybe it's an imagined relationship, but it comes from a good spot from the consumer's angle. I, I, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But you also mentioned that those small farmers that are involved in third wave coffee have a certain amount of privilege in order to be able to get to that place to begin with. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what the really small holding Mayan farmers don't have. And the cooperatives, the, the, the downside to the cooperatives in the quality market is whenever you combine different harvests together, the quality level goes down. Uh, and we have numerical rankings for quality, and that's a, a whole nother discussion about how those, those emerged. But we, you, you could have 
coffees of comparable quality going into the same batch. But then once they're mixed together, the quality level is down. It's just like mixing different flavors and slight <laughs> variations does that. And so these, these cooperatives, they don't have an individual farmer's biography to tell. And they're mixing coffee in a way that slightly reduces the quality level. But in the world of very high-end quality, big differences make a huge, little differences make a huge difference in price. So when you say quality, is this perceived quality? If you mix some of these local coffee beans together, is the quality really going down? Is it losing a certain je ne sais quoi? It does. Uh, it, it does. These differences, and sometimes I know, and today I've been, I, I can sound a little dismissive of, of, of some of the differences. The differences are real. I, I could train you in, an, uh, in a very short period of time to distinguish uh, classic Latin American and classic East African coffees and Indonesian coffees. There, there are, they just taste different. There are objective differences. Uh, but then the question becomes, you know, how does different become better? <laughs> so that's a different taste. Is it a better taste? Uh, that becomes trickier to say. And that's when these kind of cultural trends and the quest for novelty uh, and, and all of that really, really come into play. Uh, but there are standards and there are, uh, training programs that have trained tasters. Uh, and so it's ultimately a subjective trait, right? But they grade coffee on a zero to 100 point scale, sort of like Robert Parker's wines and, and down to decimal points. Uh, so you could have an 88.5, sometimes an 88.35, uh, or a 90.1. So it's it's fairly precise, right? It's almost, to the outsider, it's absurdly precise. And maybe not even, you don't even have to be an outsider, maybe. Uh, but you can train people to give the same scores. You can train their taste and so that they rate things in the same way. Uh, and so there's really a whole scientific apparatus uh, around this that have, have trained coffee cuppers. From a scientific point of view, that's really amazing to remove a certain amount of subjectivity from their taste. But that's a whole nother story. I just read that and I'm like, that's just... No, it is amazing. It was a whole world I didn't really know about either. Organoleptic studies, uh, studies of how we perceive sensory uh, experiences. Uh, and yeah, I, I also find it uh, uh, amazing. And it's, it's kind of incredible. Uh, they will do things like say, okay, a honey flavor in coffee, making this up, but it's based on, on real things. They'll say, okay, so our standard, let's say a 5.0 on a zero to 10 scale is a tablespoon of bumblebee brand honey uh, in two ounces of water and mixed together and served at 70 degrees. And we will consider that a, let's say a six on a zero to 10 scale. And so then that's your baseline. And if you can really get your baseline down in your mind, then you can do 
And this would apply to other products as well, coffee or tea or wine or whatever. And then you have that baseline in your mind. And then when you taste it, you can, you can put a name to the flavor and you can put a number very often. Fair trade. I know a lot of my listeners are concerned about fair trade and a lot of us believe it's a good thing and we like it when we see it on a label. And you talk about Fair Trade USA and Fair Trade International. Can you talk? Is Fair Trade really fair? Oh, <laughs> boy, that's a tricky I question. I mean, it's just like we know free trade isn't free. That's right. Uh, fair Trade uh, is, uh, I think we can agree that it, it's the right idea. Uh, it, uh, it makes a difference it's better than nothing. Uh, nobody's really pulling themselves out of poverty with fair trade coffee, but it does save a lot of farmers from devastation of personal finances and their farms in downturn years. So it sort of it guarantees a, a price floor for, for coffee that way. Uh, is it the, the end all? There was a big debate, and you brought up the difference between Fair Trade International and Fair Trade USA. They split uh, uh, some years back. And the reason for that split was Fair Trade USA was and is much more open to working with large companies. I don't know if this is still true, but a few years ago when I was looking into it, uh, Walmart was the largest vendor of Fair Trade uh, coffee and partnering with Fair Trade. So it's just like for a lot of people who, who think of themselves as sort of partisans of the idea of fair trade. Uh, can a large company, can Nestle get certified as being fair trade? Uh, there's a case to be made for it. There's a case to be made for if we can change Pepsi's formulation and snacks uh, just a little bit, that has a bigger impact than lots of other things. I think there's something to be said for those arguments. I'm not so much of a of an ivory tower person that I don't I don't get that. At the same time, I I am sort of fond of purity of ideas sometimes, <laughs> and I do think that there's a risk if uh, if fair of fair trade getting co-opted by by larger producers. Uh, so, and, and there's a trend, let me say this, to sort of fairer than fair trade. Uh, so people these days are talking about relationship coffee, for example, building up a relationship with particular farmers, helping them improve their quality, giving them suggestions, sort of partnering. Uh, again, the, you know, the rhetoric and the reality, there's some slippage there. Uh, but there is a move to how can we be even fairer than fair trade. Okay, another label is organic. And where does organic fit into this coffee scene? Does it at all? Uh, it does. These labels really appeal, as you're suggesting, to consumers of artisanal goods of all sorts. Uh, it's just the demographic overlaps, mm -hmm. right? We're the kind of people who tend to prefer uh, organic. In terms of ecological impact, organic is a good thing for the environment, uh, ab absolutely. It's really tough on small farmers because there are a few uh, nasty threats to coffee plants. Uh, the biggest one in recent years has been coffee rust, Arroyo. And 
there's just no way organically to fight it. Uh, and, and it destroys coffee plants. And remember four years from planting to harvest. And so uh, that makes a, a big difference. Uh, there are lots of cool things, though. Organic, bird-friendly. We have this proliferation of labels. And I think actually that's a danger because when it was only fair trade, that seemed to really mean something. And I can kind of vote with my dollars uh, and support a moral cause that way. Uh, but fair trade, organic, uh, bird friendly, rainforest alliance, oots. I mean, we have a, really a proliferation of labels that can go on coffee packages. And I think for the general consumer, a label is supposed to uh, reduce the amount of time we need to research something, right? Like we don't have the time to like Google mm -hmm. every single product we buy and see which ones align with our morals. But we can use these handy shortcuts as a label. Yep. Uh, but then when you have so many, my worry is that they kind of lose their meaning. Yeah. I, but I, I was leading into saying that some of these are, are really clever, cool ideas. Uh, the rainforest, so having shade grown coffee can help improve quality. The shade growing has all kinds of benefits, especially for migratory birds, but all kinds of ecosystem benefits. Uh, so I think it is neat that these groups are trying to use coffee to promote social goods in different ways. Well, we're going to have to wrap this up because I think we've been talking for about an hour. <laughs> what a and great conversation. We could do. Thank we you. Could, we could and I just I just want to take a moment to send some good energy and love to the Maya farmers, because I understand that not only may they not have the monetary wealth that some of the rest of the world has. Growing coffee is a difficult way to live. And as a result, they have physical deformities and probably exposed to some of the chemicals they use to grow coffee will give them diseases. And I just want to send them opportunity and healing energies. Just put that out in the greater consciousness. And I enjoyed reading about them and about your book, Making Better Coffee. Thanks so much, Karen. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And maybe we'll talk again sometime because I understand you have some stories about peanuts. <laughs> peanuts will be the next one. <laughs> I look forward to it. Okay, very good. Thank you for joining me today on It's All About Food. I'm Karen Hartglass, and you can find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Send your comments and questions to info at realmeals.org and have a delicious week.